Good evening and welcome to Chicago Tonight Latino Voices. I'm Joanna Hernandez. On the show tonight, older people vote on a push to end the Chicago police discipline system. The need is so vital out there. An expungement department is now open for residents looking for a fresh start, how it works. Early voting kicks off for the March 19th primary, what you should know before you cast your ballot. The monarch butterfly population is at a near record low, what Chicagoans can do to help. Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Latino, we try to kind of mix it all up. And we take you inside a lounge serving up Asian and Latino flavors. And now to some of today's top stories. An update to the deadly mass shooting in Kansas City that killed one person and injured 23 others. Kansas City police say the shooting where thousands have gathered to celebrate the Chiefs' Super Bowl victory was a personal dispute between several people. According to police, two juveniles are in custody. Police say a third person that had been detained has been released. We're told more than half of the victims are under the age of 16. And Governor J.B. Pritzker and Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle are committing an additional $250 million on migrants sent to Chicago. But the pair of the Democrats say another $70 million is needed. Chicago was absent from the joint funding announcement. Reporters today pressed Mayor Brandon Johnson on whether the city will come up with the money. He was guarded and grew frustrated with the questions about whether there was a disconnect between him and the state and county leaders. There is no disconnect. There are a number of matters that need to be worked through. Remember the state made a commitment to 2,000 beds back in November. Do you remember that? Yes. All right. So all of those details are still being worked through. It's not just simply about finding financial resources. It's about building the entire operation. Governor Pritzker is set to introduce his budget proposal next week. Despite today's guarantee, he'll need legislative approval for the additional spending. The Illinois primary is a little more than a month away, but you can already start casting your ballot at select locations downtown. Don't wait until the last second on March 19th. Research your choices now and make a plan to vote early. Starting today, early voting has begun at the Chicago Board of Elections Supersite location and its office, both located downtown. This year's ballot include races for president, U.S. House of Representatives, and the Cook County State's Attorney. Plus, a bidding citywide referendum on whether to raise the city's real estate transfer tax to help fund homelessness prevention efforts. Early voting in all 50 wards begin March 4th. We'll have more on early voting later in the program, and be sure to check out our online voter guide to learn more. Up next, a battle in city council over how to hold police officers accountable for serious misconduct. That's right after this. Chicago Tonight, Latino Voices, is made possible in part by the support of these donors. The Chicago City Council has once again voted to reject an effort backed by the city's largest police union that would end the system who, to hold officers accountable for serious misconduct for the past 60 years. Let's listen to a bit of the fierce debate. 
All I constantly hear in here is police are racist, police are racist, they're anti-black, they're anti-Hispanic, uh, anti anti-whatever. That is the most absolute nonsense thing I've ever heard in my entire life because I was on the other side of that radio. Please. When that call comes out, not one single time Just does a that second. call Alderman. come out. And Alderman. does anybody know who's Alderman. on the other side Alderman. of that? Slavery was legal once. Plessy versus Ferguson said that black people were three-fifths of a person. I don't know if you know this, but the law doesn't always get it right. WTDW news reporter Heather Schroen joins us now. Now that seemed like a heated debate. Heather, remind us what was at stake with today's vote. So for much of the past 60 years, officers accused of serious misconduct that could result in their termination or a suspension of more than a year had their fates decided by the Chicago Police Board after a public hearing. The Chicago Fraternal Order of Police, the city's largest police union, says that is in violation of state law, and they want their members to be able to choose whether to have their fates decided by that police board or an arbitrator. Now, it's clear that most officers will face a much lighter punishment if that decision is made by an arbitrator behind closed doors. The city council today voted for the second time to reject that decision by another arbitrator, sending the matter to Cook County to a Cook County judge to decide which is going to be a fierce legal battle. So what happens now? So that legal battle will start in a hearing that is already scheduled for later this month. At risk is whether officers, nearly 20 of them at this point, will face imminent police board hearings, including Officer Eric Stillman, who is accused of shooting um, Adam Toledo after the, the child dropped a gun. The city council... The city council's vote sets up what is likely to be a fierce legal battle, one that Mayor Brandon Johnson said he's willing to fight. Let's take a listen. The city of Chicago is clear that in order to restore, and in many cases, not even just restore, just build trust, having an open, transparent process, that's what the people of Chicago deserve and they want. And Heather, there was also news today on the migrant crisis, which state and county officials pleading to set aside additional $250 million to help care for the people sent to Chicago from the southern border. Will that be enough? It won't be. There's at least a $70 million gap between what state and county officials think that there will be needed to care for the migrants. The city has not yet committed to making up that difference, which Mayor Brandon Johnson again today saying that the state needs to make good on its promises to open a 2,000-bed shelter, and again calling on the federal government to step up and care for these migrants because, of course, as we've all reported, immigration is a federal responsibility. It is a deep mess. Clearly, the breaches between the city and the state are growing. We will keep a close eye on it. The battle continues. Well, thank you, Heather. Thanks, Joanna. And you can read Heather's full story on our website. It's all at WTTW.com news. We're back with more right after this. Cook County officials are opening what they're calling an open-stop shop for residents looking for a fresh start. And by that, they mean expunging criminal, certain criminal records. Here's Cook County Circuit Court Clerk Iris Martinez from earlier today at the ribbon-cutting of her office's new expungement department. The creation of this department is not merely an organizational change. It is a strike towards breaking down barriers to access to justice. 
WTTW news reporter Matt Masterson joins us now. Joins us now with more. Now, thank you for being here. Now, tell us what will the new department offer. So this is a new space inside the Cook County Criminal Courts Building at 26 in California, and it's a it's a one spot area where requests and filings for expungements to get these records, criminal records, wiped off the books. It can all take place. So Martinez's office said the department will offer assistance to these people who are coming and filing these expungements. They'll offer classes to make sure that they're going through this process the correct way, consultations and workshops, and make sure they have all the information they need to be able to get these criminal records off the books and get a fresh start with their lives. And can anyone with a criminal background make use of it? So it's not for quite anyone. There's only certain records that can be expunged. So for instance, if you've been charged with a crime, you've been arrested and charged, there's going to be public records about that, even if you haven't been convicted. But you can try to get those off the books, and sometimes they run into problems with housing or a job or education if you have these records out there. So people who haven't been convicted of these crimes but have these arrest or charging records out there, they can file these expungement requests and get them off the books. There are also some convictions that can also be expunged. For instance, Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox, her office for years has been trying to expunge lots of low-level cannabis-related uh, convictions that have also been on the records for sometimes decades, but those have also been expunged as well in recent years. And then how would you say that this new department is different from the old expungement system? So previously, if you, were fi if you had a charge filed in a certain branch within Cook County, and there's several, you'd have to go to the courtroom for that specific branch and file this expungement request. Now with this new department at 26 in California, you can do it there. If you had multiple charges in multiple branches, you'd have to go to each one of those, file, and pay a filing charge for each one of these. Now you, there's one charge, there's less travel, and you can get it all done in one place. So officials said there was a lot of frustration with the old process. This new streamlined process with the one location is supposed to make things a lot easier, and they're hopeful that it will. Seems like a game changer. Well, mm -hmm. thank you, Matt, for, the, for this report. Thanks, Jordan. And you can read Matt's full story on our website. That's WTTW.com slash news. one month out until the Illinois primary election. With early voting already kicking off at two downtown locations, election officials are calling on voters to make a plan. Joining us now with more on what you should know is Giovanna Carrillo, who handles Hispanic outreach for the Chicago Board of Elections. Well, thank you for joining us today, Giovanna. I want to start off. What makes someone eligible to vote? Yes, so they must be a U.S. citizen. They must have lived in their address for at least 30 days before the election. Um, and they can't claim to vote anywhere else. And as long as they're 18 by November 5th, they're eligible to vote now. And these are simple questions, of course, but how does someone go about registering? Yes, so we try to make it as easy as possible at the Board of Elections for someone to register. They can register online, they can do it um, during the early voting period, and even on Election Day. So that was gonna, I was going to ask that, can they, same, can they register on the same day? Is that available? Yes. What do they have to bring? Um, they have to bring two pieces of ID. Um, only one has to have the address. Now, there are currently two early voting sites open in downtown. Where else can people go to vote early? Um, so it's those two sites for now, um, but on March 15th, sorry, March 4th, um, they can vote in our 52 sites throughout the city, and you can vote at any of the sites regardless of what ward you live in. 
And what's something that you tell people, especially the Latino population, about the importance of going out to vote? Yeah, um, you know, your vote is your voice. And as Latinos being the largest growing demographic, it's extremely important to exercise our vote. Um, and, you know, it comes with a lot of responsibility having, being able to make that great impact. So why not? What, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges? Um, you know, a lot of Latinos face um, intimidation going into a polling place. Uh, so we do try to make it as easy as possible. Every single document at the Board of Elections is by default um, in Spanish. Um, the ballot is by default bilingual throughout the entire city. But, you know, there's also the issue of maybe lack of outreach from candidates that also, you know, might keep Latino voters away on Election Day. And what was your passion to get into the Board of Elections? Yeah, so um, I've always been part of community outreach um, since I started my college career. And I, you know, I saw that many Latinos aren't voting, that they feel intimidated by the process. So if I could help, why not? So this was something important to you? Yes. You saw it in your own home? Yeah, something deeply personal for me and my family. And for Spanish-speaking voters in particular, what should they know about what to expect and what's avail available to them when they go into a polling site? Yes, um, so one of the greatest things we do at the Board of Elections is that we work very hard to recruit bilingual poll workers throughout the city. So when a Latino voter goes in, um, they can see someone that looks like them and speaks their language. And what about those who want to vote uh, through mail? Do they have, um, is there any steps that they have to follow, or is it very simple as well? It's extremely simple. Um, you can apply to vote by mail um, on paper, but also online, and you have until March 14th to apply. Do you see a pattern for the people who vote through mail or come in person or early voting? Is there a pattern that you guys have noticed? Yeah, so we see that about 25% of voters vote by mail, 25% vote early, and about 50 50 percent of the voters vote on election is day. that interesting for you yeah it's very interesting um you know our big push is for voters to vote early you know things can always come up on election day so why leave it up to chance when they can vote early or by mail and which what should people expect to see on this year's ballot yeah so we have a variety of offices all from um, pretty local all the way to of course presidential so we have um president vice president we have state judges we have ward committeemen, we have state rep representatives, uh, state senators, and even U.S. senators. And that can be super overwhelming. Yes. So how do you break it down for people, especially of Spanish-speaking, the Spanish-speaking population? How do you break it down for them to just keep it as simple as possible? So if you go on our website, um, chicagoelections.gov or um, eleccioneschicago.com, you can see a sample ballot, so you can see what your ballot would look like on election day, and you can start doing your research from there. So it doesn't take that much. They can just go on and just start reading it. It literally takes 30 seconds. The way that people go on mm -hmm. Facebook. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> now, you also need more election judges, especially Spanish-speaking election judges. You spoke on that a little bit, but can you tell me more about the importance of having them? Yeah, um, like I said, you know, it's much easier to go into a polling place feeling less intimidated if someone there speaks your language, if someone there, you know, looks like you. So we work really hard to recruit um, judges in general, but especially those that are bilingual and speak Spanish throughout the entire city of Chicago. So we really encourage anyone who's bilingual, who's a U.S. citizen, to come on out and apply to be an election judge. How many do you have on board currently? So our goal is about um, 560. We currently have six, sorry, 560, and we currently have 600. Um, but, you know, the more the better. Um, unfortunately, we always face resignations closer to the election. There are some no-shows. So in order to be safe, 
we encourage people to apply up until election day. So go apply. Yes, please. <laughs> and what should those in high school know on whether they're eligible to vote? Yes, so if you will be 18 years old on or before November 5th, you can vote even during this primary election being 17 years old. Well, thank you, Giovanna, for all that informational um, information. Thank you. Thank you. And you can visit our online voter guide to find out if you're registered to vote and much more. It's all at WTTW.com slash voter guide. Up next, how Chicagoans are combating the near record low counts of monarch butterflies. Stay with us. Each year during spring, monarch butterflies migrate north from Mexico, looking for milkweed to lay their eggs. But the number of these insects have seen a 60% decline over this past year, reaching near-record lows according to an annual survey. Groups in Chicago have long been working to rebuild their habits, habitats and restore the monarch population. Joining us now with more is Aster Hazel, lead conservation ecologist at the Field Museum's Keller Science Action Center. Well, thank you for joining us. I love talking about butterflies. Monarch butterflies, I love them. Can you explain how the monarch population is surveyed? Yeah, so every the monarchs we see here in late August, uh, early September, migrate to central Mexico and they congregate uh, on these certain stands of pine-looking trees, and, they're, and, they're, and they actually measure the area that they occupy. Because it's even though the population has declined, it's still uh, over 20 million butterflies. So we have that area, and this year it fell by 60 percent. That's a lot, though. What, what yeah. would you say was found in the survey? So they, so they found about 20 million butterflies, 2.2 2 acres, which is about one and a half football fields of butterflies. And that the reason it's concerning is that over the past 20 years, we've seen the population decline over 80%. So this is a, a startling decline over a startling decline. And declines happen in insects, but we worry when we see these steep declines over and over again that it's going to be hard to maintain this really impressive migration. No, seriously. What would you say, what's leading to this near record low? So while the weather this summer in Chicago, it was relatively mild. We didn't have a particularly difficult summer. We heard a lot about how hot and dry it was in the southern United States and northern Mexico. And those were the conditions that the monarchs would have encountered on their migration south. And that had to have impacted them. They also migrate from here up into northern Canada. And it was not particularly, not northern Canada, sorry, southern Canada. It was not particularly great conditions for them there. So... Overall, we're seeing these continued impacts of what's happening climatologically. And what things can be done to build back the population, would you say? Yeah, so that's a really important role we see. So even with this decline, we will see monarch butterflies around about early June. You uh, might have to look a little harder than we have in years past, but we're like the breadbasket here in the Midwest. <laughs> we want to build the ones we see up as much as possible so that we're sending the most butterflies south as possible. 
And monarch adults, they're kind of picky. They'll only lay their eggs on milkweed, and those caterpillars will only eat milkweed. So we need to plant milkweed for the baby caterpillars, and then we need to have lots of beautiful flowers throughout the summer for the adults. Is that how people can help? Yeah. So planting lots of different milkweed uh, and then having flowers that bloom throughout the season because we do want some fall blooming flowers to fuel those adults up for that long migration south. Is there certain types of flowers? Now I'm just curious to see what what flowers I need to plant. Yeah, well, I have to say I'm a little partial to asters myself. Uh, That's a nice fall blooming flower. Uh, Also, goldenrods can get a bad rap, but there's lots of them, (laughs) not just the one you see in your alley. There's a bunch of different species of goldenrod. Uh, In the spring, actually having something right for when they first arrive, that's really important. Milkweeds are not even often up right when they first arrive, so you need some good spring blooming flowers and some fall blooming flowers are great. And the other thing is important is having them be pesticide free because a lot of those pesticides that will impact some insects will also definitely impact monarch That's butterflies. good to know. I'm going to keep that in mind. And um, how does this look in an urban area like Chicago compared to outside cities? Yeah, cities are hugely important. So we we don't think of, it's like, oh, well, we don't have a lot of space here. But we've studied this. I ran a four-year community science project. Those 5, 10, 15 milkweed plants. Is that a four-year? Yeah. Wow. Those 5, 10, 15 milkweed plants that you might have in your yard, you might not get eggs your first year, but you might. Um, Those really do have an impact. So it it may seem like a small area, but... That is huge, and you can plant them on your balcony, your patio, your rooftop, your yard, your front yard, your backyard, at your place of worship, at your kid's school if they let you. Uh, you know, just ask first. What do you love? Just ask first. That's, that's true. Ask first. But what do you love about the work that you do? I, you know, I mean, I, four years, yeah. uh, you know, experimenting with butterflies. I mean, that has to. That seems kind of cool. Oh, I, I love that. I love getting to talk to people who love talking about monarch butterflies. Uh, but I also love, you know, I spend a lot of my job thinking about climate change and global insect decline but like this is something that people can do this is a meaningful impact i have milkweed in my yard and it feels good when i get monarch eggs and i now i'm gonna have to do that and i I guess i'm just curious what was your reaction to finding out about this decline in population it's really hard it is really hard to see monarchs decline. It's hard to know that migrating species give us a really indica- good indication of what's happening across the landscape. This is probably an indication that a lot of insects are struggling, and, and that's concerning. So I talk about what we can do, and, and that is important, planting lots of different flowers, not only because that supports monarchs, but because that's going to support a lot of other species. Because... It's an ecosystem, and we are a part of it, and we really do need to be supporting these insects. And you talked about climate change. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what, anything happening with the state of our ecosystem as a whole. Yeah, so we are in the midst of a huge insect decline. And, you know, anybody who's more than a couple of decades old, think about the fact that you used to have to clean your windshield on a road trip. You used to see a lot more insects around the streetlights at night. You don't see that as much. You you can tell. Uh, You you don't have to have the numbers. And it's harder to have the numbers for species like monarchs that don't congregate in one place nicely. Well, thank you so much, Esther. I I, I didn't pay attention to that, but you're so right about the road trip and the insects. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Up next, how a local eatery is celebrating the Chinese Lunar New Year with Latino flavors. We explain right after this. Coverage of science and technology on Chicago Tonight is made possible in part by Joel M. Friedman, president of the Alvin H. Baum Family Fund. 
In honor of the Chinese Lunar New Year, we take you inside a restaurant combining Mexican and Asian flavors. We head to Bridgeport, where the owners of Belly Bowl Asian Kitchen and Lounge tell us more about the passion behind the dishes and the concept of their new spot. Well, we want to have like kind of like a lounge lounge area so that people can you know not just eat but relax. We also I, I'm a very uh, big fan of chess, so I want to put some chess pieces there. Just kind of people like a welcome if you're not. Cultures here, right? Yes, yes. I, more more than that, I think uh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Latino. We try to kind of mix it all up, you know. Like yeah, go ahead. Like us, like couple Chinese, you <laughs> know. I know in here people like half full, like deep fried. So I made the Mexican roll, and then everybody like it. That's why today you can see we have two dumplings in there. So dumpling is the traditional food in Chinese New Year. Everybody needs to eat it. Like means like like good luck. So how did, how did you guys how did you guys come with this concept? Well, that one because uh, my my mom. Anytime my mom comes to uh, to Chicago, she brings me like enough tamales for like a whole month. So so she so then I, I let everybody try it, but in, my mom makes them like uh, chicken, uh, de rajas, uh, puerco, pig, you know. So here I'm like, let's start with uh, the chicken one because that's what people are familiar with. That different spices. This one has sriracha, mayo. So some are like the the sauces that that are in the Chinese uh, uh, dishes, Chinese Japanese dishes. So that's deep fried chicken tamale. Yes, yes. We should also mention the restaurant has robots serving up the food. Your item. Come and pick it up. You still need the human touch. You still need technicians. You still need people to operate them. Yes. So I think with like anything else, it's still like a, we we like to say working side by side. That's kind of our model. So everything on the menu is 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 good. Is everything is my favorite. So yeah. Now, how cool are those robots? The owners also own a robotic company and two other restaurants. Now, my favorite thing on the menu was a deep-fried Korean tamale. Very good. And you can find more information about the couple's restaurant on our website. And that's our show tonight. Be sure to check out our website at wttw.com slash news for the very latest from WTTW News. And join us tomorrow night at 5.30 and 7 for the weekend review. Now, from all of us here at Chicago Tonight Latino Voices, I'm Joanna Hernandez. Stay healthy, stay safe. Buenas noches. Closed captioning is made possible by Robert A. Clifford and Clifford Law Offices, a Chicago personal injury and wrongful death firm that supports free educational initiatives in the legal profession.